You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together to the first book of Chronicles. We're going to read a number of selections from four of the chapters here in the opening part of the first book of Chronicles. We'll begin with chapter 1, the verses 1 to 4, 17 to 28 and 34. Then we'll move on to chapter 2 and chapter 3 and finally chapter 6. The book of Chronicles opens then with these words, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We turn to verse 17. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hal, Gether, Meshach. Arpachshad was the father of Shelah. Shelah was the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Alomad, or Al-Modad, Shafleth, Harzamarmath, Jerah, Haduram, Azal, Dikla, Obol, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were sons of Joktan. Shem, Arpachshad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Zerag, Nahor, Terah, and Abraham, that is, Abraham. The sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. And then verse 34, Abraham was the father of Isaac, the sons of Isaac, Esau, and Israel. Then we turn to chapter 2, again the verses 1 to 4. These were the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These three were born to him by a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Zerah. Judah had five sons in all. Then we turn to chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. These were the sons of David born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. The second, Daniel, the son of Abigail of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggis. The fifth, Shephathiah, the son of Abital. The sixth, Ithriam, by his wife Eglah. These six were born to David in Hebron, where he reigned seven years and six months. David reigned in Jerusalem 33 years, and these were the children born to him there. Shammuah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. These four were by Bathsheba, daughter of Emiel. There were also Ibhar, Elishua, Eliphalet, Nogath, Naphag, Japhia, Elishima, Elida, Elaphet, nine in all. All these were the sons of David, besides his sons by the concubines, and Tamar was their sister. 
Then we turn to chapter 6, 31 to 33. These are the men David put in charge of the music in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest there. They ministered with music before the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, until Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. They performed their duties according to the regulations laid down for them. Here are the men who served together with their sons from the Kohathites, Heman, the musician, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, and their follows. And then finally, verse 48 to 52. Their fellow Levites were assigned to all the other duties of the tabernacle, the house of God. But Aaron and his descendants were the ones who presented offerings on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense in connection with all that was done in the most holy place, making atonement for Israel in accordance with all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. These were the descendants of Aaron, Eliazar, his son, Phinehas' son, Abishua, his son, Bucky, his son, Uzi, his son, Zariah, his son, Marioth, his son, Amariah, his son, Ahitub, his son, Zadok, his son, and Ahimaaz, his son. Our text then this morning comes from these opening chapters of the first book of Chronicles and all those verses and we have read together. Well, of the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, isn't this just about the strangest Advent text that you've ever come across? All we have here are names and names and more names. And as a matter of fact, 1 Chronicles, the chapters 1 to 9, is just chalk full of names and more names. Names everywhere. Names by the hundreds, by the thousands. Some are familiar. A lot are not. Many are strange. And as you notice, some are hard to pronounce. So what's the sense of all of this? Why does the Bible mention all of these people? Why this endless parade of names? And isn't this just a waste of pen, paper, and papyrus? Many people think so. Even a lot of scholars are inclined to agree. The Bible would be a lot better off, they muse, without this huge cast of dead characters. Without this clutter of endless names. And you know, for a while I thought so too. But then I got to thinking and reading and reflecting and I, I finally came to the conclusion that these names must have some kind of meaning. After all, the Bible is no ordinary book. It's not your average human writing. The main author is the Holy Spirit. And does the Holy Spirit ever inspire the writing of silly things, empty things, meaningless things? I don't think so. And I don't think you should think so either. So if the Holy Spirit is ultimately responsible for the inclusion of all of these names, 
then he must have some purpose in mind. And they have to have some sort of meaning. And he's got something up his sleeve. He must have. But what? What is the Spirit's intention and purpose here? Now, you might say that's for him to know and for us to figure out. And in due time, with a lot of spiritual determination and some good old-fashioned mental elbow grease, something starts to emerge. It's also something that has to do with Advent. And indeed, let me summarize the main thrust of this sermon under the theme, the chronicler would like to introduce you to some fellow saints for Christmas. Or he'd like to introduce you to some long-dead folk. Well, beloved, it should be rather obvious that we don't have the time to deal with all of the names mentioned in these first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles. We have to make a choice. We need to do some picking and choosing as well as some pointing. And in in that connection, let me point you, first of all, to chapter 1. What do we find there beside names? Well, you could say that we find there any number of names that we recognize. Adam, Seth, Methuselah, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Esau. But there is more, for there's also a certain pattern or structure here. In verse 1 of chapter 1, we're presented with the names of all of the main personalities in the opening chapters of Genesis. But then in verse 4, notice the spotlight shifts to Noah and his sons, and thereafter the sons of Noah and their sons are mentioned in the order of Japheth, Ham, and finally Shem. And next in verse 27, we meet Abraham or Abraham, and then his sons are listed. Notice Keturah's sons come first, and then Isaac is mentioned, as well as his two sons, Esau and Israel. And after listing all of Esau's sons and descendants, the names continue with Israel or with Jacob's family. Now you need to stop here and ask, what is the chronicler doing here? Or better yet, what is the Holy Spirit doing through him? You might say he's introducing you to the history of the people of God. He's showing you that God has been carefully selecting, forming, and separating for himself a people ever since the dawn of history. Beginning with Adam and continuing with Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, God has been building, God has been working. But notice he's also been discarding. He goes only so far with Japheth, with Ham, with the sons of Keturah, with Esau. And then he stops. And notice, there's only one thread that keeps on going. There's only one line to which he repeatedly returns. There's only one people who receive his constant attention. Oh, and as he's doing all of this, keep in mind that these books of the chronicler 
were among the last books of the New Testament or the Old Testament to be written. You might say that in them he's looking back, way, way back to the very beginning of God's people. Yes, and as he gazes back, he sees ever so clearly that God's covenant people are no accident. They didn't just happen. They didn't just fall out of the sky. They didn't simply come along. They're not the product of chance or fate or luck. Now, these people are the people of God's very own choosing. He planned them. He called them. He preserved them. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses says to the Israelites, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. You see, the Israelites are not just any people. They're God's chosen people. And also the Old Testament, God introduces us to them and he keeps on moving forward. But moving forward to what? Why to that great day of the first advent? Or notice what the angel Gabriel says about Jesus when he comes to Joseph He will save his people from their sins. The angel doesn't simply say people or all people. No, he refers to his people. In other words, the Savior will have his very own chosen people. God will present this people to him. They will be served to him as if on a platter. It will be given to him. And he will do something very special for them. He will save them. He will liberate them. He will redeem them. When Jesus Christ is born, he immediately comes into possession, in other words, of a people, a remnant, an elected nation. And all those believing and selected saints in the Old Testament are really his. But they belong to him. Yes, and by the same token, all of the saints since his birth belong to him as well. For God did not stop selecting and electing once Jesus Christ was born. Now the process continued. And it continues today. God is still through His Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit gathering His people together. But God is no longer gathering that people simply from one line or one family or one nation or one tribe. No, He does it from all tribes and all peoples and all nations. Oh, and what a comfort it is to know this. It shows us who believe just how special we are. 
It reminds us that we are ever the object of an eternal, divine, inscrutable love. It assures us that we are the target of his special affection and attention. And if we are all of that, beloved, then we can be certain that he will not abandon us. He will not give up on us. He has invested so much of himself in his people, so much time, so much love, so much mercy that he will not let us go. Remember that as a believer, you are part and parcel of God's divinely selected people. But still, beloved, that's not all that we learn from the chronicler. He also wants to show us something more. What? Well, it begins in chapter 2, verse 3, where we meet the sons of Judah. It continues in chapter 3, where we meet David and his sons. It goes on to the next part of chapter 3, where we meet the kings of Judah. And then in the last part of chapter 3, we even get to hear about the descendants of Jehoiachin, the last real king of Judah and his sons. So what's the chronicler doing here? What's the meaning of these names and this particular process of selection and rejection? Well, it has everything to do with the royal line within the framework of God's people. You see, again, the chronicler is tracing, tracing out just how God kept the line of David alive through through all those years of faithfulness and faithlessness, of peace and of war, of living in the promised land and of exile. You see, the Lord is not about to forget the promises that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Promises ultimately about an eternal son, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. It will all come to pass. And indeed they did come to pass. You know, beloved, the New Testament opens and what do we hear first? We hear these words, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Did you catch that? The New Testament introduces us to Jesus Christ as the son of David. And notice the order here as well. It should really be Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Abraham should go first. David should go second. But that's not the way we read it in Matthew 1 verse 1. So why has the order been changed? It's to remind us that God has kept his promise to David and to his royal line. David's great son has come and sits on his throne. Yes, unless we forget, he's still there. After all, Jesus Christ died, rose again, ascended into the heavens, and 
And what did he do? Well, he sat down. He, he sat down on a heavenly throne in the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And he sits there still, even today. At this very moment, he's still ruling and reigning. He's still sovereign and in control. And indeed, he will reign there, Scripture says, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. You see, Christ is ruling still. He remains on David's throne until. And now, of course, I realize that that does not solve all of our problems today. It doesn't get rid of all of our illnesses. It doesn't get rid of all of our worries about the economy. It doesn't do away with the blood being spilt in places like Afghanistan. But, you know, it does give us hope. Even though we're living in a democracy... We need to remind ourselves that actually we're still part of a monarchy. We're under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. And whether you see it or not, he's moving towards victory. A cosmic victory. A perfect victory. A victory of renewal and restoration. But we are not there yet. We are still, you might say, in the interim between the advents. And what shall we do then? Well, turn again to those opening chapters of the first book of Chronicles. Who else do you meet there besides a selected people and a royal? People are a royal line. You meet the symphony orchestra. You meet a whole bunch of musicians. You find them in chapter 6, 31 and following. And there's a lot of them, and they're all from the tribe of Levi. From the Kohathites, we get Heman and his sons. From the family of the Gershonites, we get Asaph, his sons. From the family of the Merarites, we get Ethan and his sons. And together they play harps, lyres, cymbals. You can read about that in chapter 25. Some of them also sing. And in total, we are told there are 288 musicians. And all of them were trained and skilled in music for the Lord. So now the question arises, why does the chronicler include all of these people? Why does he mention all of these musicians? What's so special about them? Well, surely it's a reminder to them, as well as to us, that throughout the ages, God's people have been more than simply a selected people, a royal people. They have also been a worshipping, praising 
people. Wherever God is and his people are, there's music to be heard. There are songs to be sung. There is praise that rings out. Music and worship are integral to this people. It's in their fiber, in their bones, in their hearts, and on their lips. And that, beloved, is especially true when something noteworthy happens. After their divine escape by the Red Sea, Israel, led by Miriam, sings a new song, right? When the tabernacle is completed, Israel rejoices and the Levitical orchestra plays. When kings are crowned, the people break forth in song and dancing. When the temple is completed, Israel erupts in music to the Lord. You see, all of the major events, all of the major feast days, are marked by the fact that God's people show themselves to be a praise and worship people. And so is it thus any wonder that when Christ is born, the same thing happens? Have you ever asked yourself, why are those first chapters of Luke so filled with music and song? We have the song of Mary, we have the song of Elizabeth, some would say. We have the song of Zechariah. We have the heavenly choir of angels. What would Christmas be without music? God's people are a singing people. And we are a singing and musical people. Because ultimately we are a worshiping people. And that is what we've always been. And I remind you that is what we will always be. Look at the book of Revelation. Filled with song and song and song. You know that's also what we should continue to be today as well. It was interesting last Monday night for those of you who were there at the brass and organ concert And did you see how the musicians reacted when the congregation began to sing? I was sitting over there in the corner and I watched a couple of jaws drop. And they looked at each other in surprise. And afterwards they even commented to those who were present that they rarely heard anymore today such singing. Such music. Well, why is that? I think it's because people, even some Christians, simply don't know how to sing or cannot be bothered to sing. They'd rather be spectators. They'd rather be an audience. Their mouths barely move. Their lips hardly open. Their vocal cords are underemployed. And now naturally I realize that not everyone is into music and knows how to sing precisely. But you know, no matter what, if you're a believer, there should be a song in your heart. There should be a song from your lips. Even if it's off tune, 
For of all people, we have something and someone to sing about. If Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so, beloved, the Chronicler has shown us by means of these names that God's people are a selected people, a royal people, a singing people. And that leaves us with time to garner just one more insight from these chapters. It can be found especially in chapter 6, the verses 48 to 52. Actually, it can be garnered from that entire chapter of chapter 6, but it's these particular verses, I believe, that bring it out best. So what do these verses bring out? You notice they draw our attention to the matter of sacrifice. Read verse 49. But Aaron and his descendants were the ones who presented offerings on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense in connection with all what was done in the most holy place, making atonement for Israel. Here mentions made of the altar of the most holy place of sacrifice of atonement. It's all A reminder that you might say, here we have come to the heart and the focal point of Israel's worship. In that connection, I I remind you as well how the Israelites, when they were going through the desert, would set up camp. Maybe three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. What was in the center of the camp? It was in the tabernacle. And you might ask, what's in the center of the tabernacle? It's the altar. The altar before the mercy seat. And what that demonstrates is that at bottom, God's people are also a sacrificing people. Of course, you might ask why, and why is that necessary? Well, because by nature, by nature, we are a sinful people, a wayward people, a doomed to die people. And God knows this. And that's why He, He provides a way of escape. And how does he do that? Well, by means of the sacrificial system, by means of the death of another, by means of sacrifice. Do we understand that? And better yet, do we still appreciate that? Do we applaud God for finding another way to deal with our sin and our guilt? Do we rejoice in the gift of His Son, the Son who took our sin and guilt away as far as the East is from the West and who nailed it to His cross? Is there any other way to deal with sin? Guilt? You know, Martin Luther early on and a lot of the monks of the Middle Ages, they thought the way to deal with sin and guilt was through deprivation. Take off your clothes. You get rid of all your comforts, all your creaturely comforts. You turn down the heat. 
You let in the cold, you stop eating, you stop sleeping, you fast, you pray, you concentrate on your sins. Supposedly, that's how you paid. Others went even further to what we call self-flagellation. They would make a whip, preferably with metal hooks in it, and they would then proceed to whip themselves until they tore the skin off their body and the blood flowed like rivers into the ground. Is that the way to atone for our sins? Or is the Japanese way preferable? It used to be in Japan that you atone for your sins by committing harikari. You took out your sword, you placed it in your abdomen, and you fell upon it, and you died. And supposedly, you atoned. Is that the way? Notice, beloved, Scripture says that God has a better way. A God-ordained way. It's all about God stepping into the breach and providing a substitute. In the Old Testament, it was all about animal substitution. In the New Testament, however, it's about the great substitute, Jesus Christ. And about his one final, supreme, complete sacrifice. You know what else does the angel say to Joseph? About the coming of Christ and his people. Does he not say that the Messiah will come and he will save his people from their sins? How will he do that? How will he accomplish that? By becoming their sacrifice, their substitute, their offering, their altar. Hebrews 13 reminds us that we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And we have a high priest who has suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. You see, Jesus Christ is our substitute. And he makes us holy. And we don't need any other beside him. So, beloved, does that mean then that we are no longer a sacrificing, sacrificial people? Hardly. In light of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews goes on and he urges us, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. In other words, God is saying, leave the sacrifice for sin to me. But you make sure that your life is now a life lived as a sacrifice of praise 
honor and glory to me. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That is your spiritual act of worship. And so, beloved, we are still to be today a sacrificial people. For look, Christmas really is all about the Lamb of God who has come and who atones for the sins of his selected, royal, praising, and sacrificial people. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.